Welcome back to the Foul Balls podcast. I'm here today with two of my friends uh, that I worked with at Trackman Baseball, Aiden Hamlin and Ben Drozdoff, for this bonus episode. Uh, we're going to talk for a little bit longer than usual, uh, longer than Greg and I usually talk, about some of the main issues that a lot of DFS players seem to have, especially uh, the Roto Pros subscribers recently, um, some things that have come up in conversation a lot. So just want to get some more expertise here and address some of the common issues that we talk about. And uh, this is just a pretty good baseball conversation overall. It's uh, it's rare that you get people all in the same room for this long who have a really good understanding of philosophy of sports, not just the players and the stats and everything, but uh, a unique and I think really well calibrated way of thinking about stuff. So I think this is a pretty good discussion and I hope you guys sit through the entire thing because uh, it's kind of long, but I think it's really insightful. So here we go. All right, let's start it up. All, All right, right, guys, we are in the middle of the Indians' awesome win streak. They're up one nothing in the fifth inning as we start this recording, going for 20 wins in a row. And uh, I guess let's just talk about, I don't know, what sort of stuff do you think overcomes a team, or I guess if anything, like what what's going on with the Indians? Is there is it anything more than just random variants? Like how do you how do you explain when a team wins this much? Can it be all luck, or is there some sort of something else going on? Uh, it's destiny, Matt. It's, uh, <laughs> it's destiny. No, it's just fate. <laughs> no, I mean I don't know. I, I I think it has to be like mostly randomness, right? I mean obviously it's not a pure coin flip. Like the Indians are a good baseball team, and they played a lot of not so good baseball teams on this streak. So but like. Even if it's a weighted coin, you know, even if it's a coin that has a 70% chance of getting heads, like, it would just take a lot of randomness for a string of 20 heads in a row. I think the only other thing you could possibly attribute it to is, like, if you believe in the hot hand effect, um, I personally don't think the evidence is strong enough to believe it. But I, if you did believe that, then then there would be some, like, kind of chained probability there um that's where you have dependencies on past games all right what about you aiden do you put any weight into there possibly being some sort of confidence boost or something like that that makes the indians more likely to win than you would expect just based on the sheer quality of the baseball team and their opponents nope just just no yeah i i don't know yeah do you want to elaborate uh (laughs) well i i I don't think any of that is real. It's all. It's just randomness. Let's say you want to be extremely generous since they've been playing some terrible teams and give them like a 70% chance of winning every game. That's still 0.0001% chance of winning 19 straight. I mean, this is it's just randomness. So even if there is some sort of um, increase in ability, like the team had a bunch of players simultaneously recover from lingering injuries, uh, they I think a couple guys came off the disabled list that have been playing well, like Lonnie Chisinau and Austin Jackson were out for a while. And uh, I don't know, maybe they sort of feed off each other emotionally and psychologically. All of that evidence is completely anecdotal. So there's no, like, there's no statistical basis for it. If you take over the long haul of, all the baseball teams that have ever played and you look at teams that have won 10 games in a row, the best way to predict if they're going to win the 11th game or the 12th game or whatever, it's just their pure ability and the ability of the other team. Uh, So even if that does occur, 
sometimes every once in a while where a team has something else going for them that isn't explained just by the pure numbers of the team. And no, I'm not implying that there's some sort of fate or destiny at work. It's just, uh, there might be just some unseen factors there where maybe there's a coaching change where the coaches implemented a new policy where the players have to get more sleep at night or something. And now they're all just improved. I mean, there, there's a whole, I, I, there's infinite reasons why a team could all, all simultaneously start playing better, but to say that you can know that that's going on during the time that it's happening is just, it's completely ridiculous. Like it, it's impossible to actually know that any of that stuff is occurring until after the fact. And most people who say that it is are just completely guessing. So the statistical basis is the only thing we can trust because there just is no other evidence. Yeah. I mean, it's something we talked about a lot, actually at Trekman, just talking about whether or not hot streaks are real. And I think the conclusion we came to for a lot of it was it's real, but it's not at all like something you can use to predict performance moving forward. It's just kind of something you observe afterwards, and usually it's just based off of luck, mostly anyways. So you could make that argument that maybe they – well, you can't even really make that argument. That doesn't say that maybe they just happened to get lucky with the scheduling and they were playing a bunch of opponents who were tired and they had a bunch of off days. But even in this winning streak, they've had, had two double headers last week, so you can't even really – use that as a something that would help them. So, I don't know. Maybe there's something that we just haven't thought of, but even if there is, I mean, it's still, you're not going to know that it's going, it has no predictive value, as I guess what you're saying. I definitely agree with that. I think I know where you guys are going to land on this, but I just want to throw it out there. We've talked a lot about the Indians and how, like, you know, what factors could drive them to play better. Do you think it's possible that, there's kind of a reverse psychological effect on the teams playing the Indians saying like, we are playing like, you know, a team that's playing so well right now. And even if it's like not grounded in reality, like their probability of winning. Uh, I mean, maybe that could be like a thing for younger people, but I feel like I don't buy those, those types of lines of reasoning for professionals. For the most part, maybe it's more of a factor now just because a lot of people who have been playing lately are double or triple A call-ups who are playing the pros for the first time. So maybe something like that would affect those players more. But I feel like mostly now it's just that eh, I don't really buy that as a factor. Yeah, I think it's possible, but it's probably not a factor. So I was watching the beginning of the Indians game tonight against the Tigers and Ian Kinsler was up against Kluber on a two-strike pitch. Kluber threw a slider in the dirt, and Kinsler just, like, kind of waved at it like he wasn't even trying. And then it was a drop third strike, and he just walked to the dugout, like, didn't even... He, he saw it on the ground and was just like, ah, screw it, I don't care. Um, but he also hit a double in the first inning, his previous at bat. So I feel like if you try to do things like that based on the eye test, you're going to come up with all of these biases, and you're going to forget a lot of the data. You're just going to remember the one noteworthy thing. I think a lot of people who were watching that might have thought, oh, wow, the Tigers are just kind of giving up because it's like, oh, crap, these are the Indians. They're so good. Why even make an effort? But the players are trying if you – I mean, if you look if you look at an entire game and I think you tried to analyze effort for all the guys over the course of a game, I really don't think you'd see any noticeable difference. So, sure, you can pick out – you can cherry pick some examples where maybe it looks like they aren't trying, but you could find an equal number probably of uh, events on the other side of the spectrum – so I think it's possible, Ben, but again, it's just going to be really anecdotal. Like, I don't I don't think that you'd see any evidence to back that up. I agree with that. I just thought I'd throw it out there as a discussion point. It's an interesting point. point. Yeah, 
Maybe, and even if it were possible, it's something that we'd never, whoa, nice catch by a Rangers fan. Uh, it's just something that you'd never be able to tell anyway, so. That's the thing, right? We have no input data. Like, we can make assumptions about psychological data. Like, we can assume when everyone's winning that, like, everyone's, you know, like, whatever, dopamine levels or, or any kind of, like, chemical balance of the brain. Like, we can make assumptions based on past performance, but, like, we don't know. Like, it could be a huge predictor, but, like, we have no way of measuring it. Or we can just be, like, dumb Dodgers fans and uh, say that the entire reason the Dodgers are losing is because Corey Seager's having fun while losing and he doesn't <laughs> care. I, let's let's talk about them, actually. I didn't even think of that, but the Dodgers, I guess, are at the opposite side of what the Indians are doing because the Dodgers are definitely a really good team. I guess the easiest explanation for the Dodgers struggles besides Corey Seager having too much fun is uh, <laughs> that they've been injured. Like Seager didn't play for a while. Kershaw missed. I think it was two months. He's only made two starts since he was back from the DL. And I think his velocity has been down. So, I mean, you, there's an actual reason to attribute the Dodger struggles to for those factors. Um, but what, like what else is going on with them? Is it possible that all the players were just overachieving for the first half of the season? I mean, I think there's a significant amount of regression from players who were overachieving. Uh, Alex Wood was obviously pitching. I mean, he's a talented pitcher when healthy, but he was obviously pitching way better than he most likely should be. And Chris Taylor was performing at a very unsustainable level. I think he had a 400 Babbitt before the All-Star break or very close to it. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, when you have a team that's on pace to have a record-breaking season. It's not going to be sustainable, and it kind of just uh, some timely injuries mixed with pretty much the entire team regressing at the same time doesn't make for a good combo. So there's no anti-win streak uh, emotional stuff going on, like the opposite of what the Indians are doing? Uh, I, I mean, I'd say I still tend to err on the side of not believing that's really a major factor or really a factor at all. I guess I'd, I'd buy those factors being more prevalent in the losing streak just because, I don't know, it's pretty pretty easy to tell when players are struggling and, you know, if someone's got like a no for 25 streak that they're visibly pissed off on the field. And I can see how that could more easily get in someone's head and affect their performance. But I still feel like most of these guys are professionals and it, it, it's really not that big of a factor. Yeah, I've always thought cold streaks are more predictive than hot streaks. I think that there's some statistical basis for it, but just intuitively it makes more sense that like cold streaks can be explained by injuries or some sort of yeah, mechanical or, flaw or something like that. Yeah, hot streaks don't really yeah. have that. Yeah. Like Tom Tango showed that too. Like Tom Tango showed that I think a cold streak is is like you know, two or three times as big of a statistical impact than a hot streak. Uh, hot streaks is minimal which means a quote but it's less minimal i i also yeah i think it's possible that it it, could compound a little bit if everyone on the team were to be struggling at the same time and i don't really know what the what what it's like in the clubhouse there but i mean i wouldn't imagine most of these guys are too upset when they still have the best record in the league and really haven't had much to play for in a while i can't imagine it's getting to them too much but I also think you're like kind of like psychologically the amount of room you have to kind of move in either direction. Like you have a lot more room to kind of go down than you do up. Like you're, if you're at the major league level and, and like 
you play well enough to have a job every day, like your psychological like status has to be like on point almost all the time, right? Like the idea that you have kind of room to be more prepared or more, you know, focused during a hot streak. Like I just don't think like I think you you kind of hit your ceiling. It makes sense that you have like a lower floor of wow, things are really going poorly. I'm kind of in my own head for the first time. So I think it's just like you have more room to go down than you do up, which I think is another kind of reason why I could yeah. more buy old streaks. That's kind of something I was trying to touch on earlier too, and just that I think some of that would get weeded out just by I, I think if there's someone who has significant mental issues that in general that'll pop up in the minors and prevent them from ever getting to the pros. Oh yeah, that's uh, definitely a good point. You're not gonna you're not gonna see someone like I don't know, even I mean even Brandon Marshall still has obviously had a ton of success, but it's not gonna have someone in the pros who has like significant mental issues that's causing them to There's definitely a survivorship bias there, like a player who is susceptible to having some sort of mental breakdown whenever they're in a slump. Yeah, they're not going to be in the majors most likely. There are some exceptions, sure, but you don't see that a lot in professional athletes. But uh, I think it's interesting what Ben was saying too, that I think what you're describing is that player production in professional sports is not normally distributed. But you're talking about the elite performers in the world and they're playing at the best of their ability. They're not playing at like 50% of their ability where they're in the middle of their own spectrum. They're playing as well as they can possibly play most of the time. Otherwise, they wouldn't be a professional athlete. So there's way more room to fall than there is to rise. I mean, they're they're all the way at the top already. Um, so I think that's definitely a good point. I think it's something people don't realize. And I guess that's why the Tom Tango analysis, um, those statistical studies will always show that cold streaks are more reliable and more sustainable than hot streaks just because there's more room for them. Yeah, and, and like, I mean, even even from a physical perspective, if a pitcher's throwing two miles an hour slower, they're probably hurt. They're probably, like, you know, maybe maybe it's an age thing. You know, you're not, you're much more likely to lose two miles an hour than you are to pick up two miles an hour. Um, and it's the same general idea. Like, if you had room to pick up two miles an hour, you w- most likely wouldn't be at the big leagues. Like, you have to essentially be maxed out to be at the big leagues. So. Yeah, and well, I think that's something that is actually that people in baseball today are just generally struggling to deal with in that it's been pretty well documented that the whole peak age of players is like 27 to 28 is like a bullshit idea, and that's not really true. But people still seem to think like, Oh look, Francisco Lindor's awesome, but he's going to keep getting better because he's only 24. Even though most data nowadays says nope, he's probably peaked right now, and this is the best he's ever going to be, especially with pitchers, obviously, because most of those guys are coming up and throwing as hard as they ever will, and you shouldn't expect that to continue to improve. And well, there's I, also I just um, there's a there's a very unnatural aging curve for pitchers compared to hitters. Like hitters normally have a pretty regular aging curve based on what you'd see in other sports, where a rookie or a second year player isn't at his peak yet, with some exceptions. Like Lindor is dramatically overachieving relative to what he was expected to do coming out of the minors. So to expect him to keep climbing is a little ridiculous. But for most hitters, I think they do age pretty normally. For pitchers, though, yeah, it's like their peak is. It can be all over the place, but for the most part, it does seem like it's right at the beginning of their career. 
Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah. Obviously, pitchers are gonna be much more unpredictable, but I still think that just the general baseball fan right now still has a warped idea of how hitters are gonna age, and while they are more predictable, I mean, most hitters are showing that they're gonna peak younger in their career. This is something actually that I had briefly talked about with Ben earlier in the year, and that he, I, I was saying that this was gonna be Aaron Judge's career year right now and he was questioning that this would be his career year and I'd be willing to bet that he does not ever top his 2017 war yeah probably not I mean I guess that he can plateau and keep up this or something close to this level of production for a while maybe with some valleys in that production but yeah to expect him to just continue to progress and get better off of this season is a little absurd which not something that Ben necessarily I would imagine would not bet on but I would be willing to guess that a lot of the just like more casual Yankees fans are going to go into next year thinking that you know Aaron Judge is going to continue to put up these insane numbers and improve on them because hey he's only twenty five. Yeah, I mean, I think the idea that it also like the age curve, the age curve is is like a grossly oversimplified concept I mean, to think that the aging curve is going to apply to somebody who had you know a five-win season as a 25-year-old, the same as it will someone who had a one-win season is kind of laughable, right? Like, they basically, yeah. I mean, how you aggregate it is you take every player and see, like, all right, how have they aged? But, like, even if on average players get better from age 25 to 26, which, honestly, I don't have it in front of me. I don't know if they do. Um, like, the idea that, I mean, there's also a lot of simple regression built into, like, somebody who had a five-win season is not likely to put up another five-win season just, just off of regression, right? So, like, I think combining the two ideas, it, it definitely indicates that players who have, like, really good seasons really young are not likely to get better. Like even, even Mike Trout, like, is, he certainly hasn't gotten worse, right? But, like, if you put up a... 10 win season at some level you almost can't get better and that trout hasn't and he's still awesome he's still the best <laughs> player in baseball let's um let's pivot to some more dfs related stuff well i guess this isn't daily fantasy necessarily but i want to talk about 40-man rosters and the implications that that, that has I, I guess first of all do you think the team should have the expanded rosters to this degree or at all and then I guess we'll talk about the implications that has on like manager decisions and then also how to pick players for DFS. I don't really like it. Uh, um, I, I think the positives from it are that you get players who normally are not going to get big league experience, like a chance to get big league experience. And I, I think that's awesome. But I, I just don't like the idea that you have like two separate sets of rules during different parts of the season. Like that just doesn't, seem right to me i'm totally okay with having somewhat expanded rosters throughout the year like make it 27 men you know make it something like that um but like i the idea that that i mean because i think we'll probably get to this discussion but like it's a completely different game it really is like player usage is completely different like it's it's uh it doesn't seem right to have especially at the end of the season when like the leverage on certain games is highest 
doesn't seem right to have these like radically different rules so that a team who built their, who built their roster to be really good is now like less good because of these new roster construction. Uh, I've got a, I don't know, I've got a couple, couple thoughts on it. I, I, I do like the fact that I think it actually rewards teams with depth. So obviously it's not playing out right now, but that's something where the Dodgers are an insanely deep team and, uh, casting away their current performance, this should be an area where it helps them and that they're able to use that depth uh, as an advantage. Um, on the other hand, yeah, I mean, I think the teams that are out of it are just going to uh, really just use players who probably shouldn't be in the pros and kind of give them a chance to, to get some big league experience. And it makes games incredibly unwatchable for fans. Working some of the games last year, whereas late in the year where it was like the Diamondbacks game against, I don't know, Diamondbacks-Rockies last year where neither team did matter to them and it was completely unwatchable. But, um, yeah, I can kind of also agree with your point of that it's it's pretty drastic rule changes. I think going along with something where you could have the 40-man roster available, but it's kind of like, you know, football where you had to choose before the game 25 that you wanted to be able to use. That might help yeah. improve it a little bit. I like that. Um, as for daily fantasy, uh, I, I haven't played any daily fantasy in September, Matt. But I can't imagine it ever being something I'd want to do because it's just so volatile, and most teams have such a short lease on starting pitching that it just makes it so much more unpredictable. And like uh, with with uh, Danny Salazar, like a week and a half ago, he gave up a home run in the first inning. And wasn't looking sharp, so they just took him out. And well, to be fair, like in that game, they had announced that he was going to be on like a 45-pitch limit before the game started. So that one was at least somewhat expected. Like, I didn't use him that day, even though he was playing the White Sox and was cheap because they had announced the pitch limit. Um, but the way that I sort of combat that is I lean more heavily on teams in the playoff race. So it's kind of yeah. easy this year in the American League with so many teams fighting for wild card spots you're not going to see position players, starting position players lifted from games that early when the game's close because they're trying to win. Like it matters to them to win. Um, but the teams that have locked up playoff spots or the teams that are way out of it, they take their players out so early that if, unless the game's within three runs or maybe five runs, I don't know, just being generous, but unless the game is reasonably close after the seventh inning, you'll see all the backups in. Um, so that's definitely an issue. But I, yeah, I think the way to get over that is to just lean more heavily on the teams that are in playoff contention. And there's enough of them this year where uh, you're not really, you're not really limiting yourself too much. Uh, but I would imagine for most years where there aren't this many teams fighting for the wild card, that it's pretty difficult. Um, I didn't, I didn't really do daily fantasy that much before this season. So I don't, I don't really know what it was like before this. Um, fortunately, it's been really yeah. easy to use Indians starting pitching over the last three weeks because they don't want to take their guys out early because they're going for the winning streak. Uh, so that's been really nice. Like, they like Carlos Carrasco go six or seven innings every time. Kluber's, I think, pitched a couple complete games over the last three weeks, even though the games are kind of meaningless for them. Uh, so I guess you just have to be more careful and um, do more research in finding the situations where a team is more likely to leave their players in. But I definitely agree the volatility goes way up in September, and it's definitely very annoying. Yeah, so I, I guess, yeah, it's actually just going to – just thinking that as you're talking, it kind of just reminds me of like playing fantasy in week 17 for football, where I guess it it could create 
some more opportunities if you're going to do more research and, uh, you know, just kind of pick those good matchups where you really think it's going to be a close game. So the teams are going to be more inclined to keep their players in. And yep. if you actually do the research, you could give yourself a better, uh, better situation than you'd normally find. I'd just say it takes takes a lot more work to go into those matchups. It's also an awesome yeah. time of year for uh, prospect nerds like us, where you we actually know the players that are coming up and uh, contributing for teams. Like Ozzy Albies is sort of well-known, but he's been batting in the two-hole for the Braves for a few weeks, and he's young enough they're not going to just take him out of games when the game's out of hand. So guys like that, or Jordan Leplo on the Pirates, or um, I guess any of the teams that are in playoff contention, there's a ton of them that have prospects. But uh, it's cool that we at least know the prospects to have this advantage, because I think most people who play Daily Fantasy, like the the true experts in the DFS world, uh, they're doing everything with computer algorithms, so they, they don't actually know who these players are. And uh, th- that feel that you kind of need to have to know how managers will operate with those guys, I think all that goes against the people that are usually the best in the world at playing Daily Fantasy. They're at kind of a, I won't say disadvantage, but they have less of an advantage in September because I think that they're computer experts first and baseball fans second, or maybe not even baseball fans at all, and they don't they don't know who these players are. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting point, and. I'd say the projection systems are still much worse at projecting young players and prospects. And actually, I think that creates another interesting point. Um, and then you're talking about a lot of the experts. And I would imagine, I don't know if this is true or not, but I would imagine in September, a lot of the experts are moving on to football. And so if you were playing Daily Fantasy this weekend, I would be willing to bet that there were a lot, there was a lot less uh so-called experts or just intelligent daily fantasy plans playing dfs baseball because they're excited about the first weekend of being able to play football and focused on that. i can um i can actually confirm that point so the baseball contests uh very rarely have overlay where there's more prize money than entry money like the contests almost always fill for baseball throughout the season but this week particularly this weekend there was a ton of overlay where people just didn't play in the baseball tournaments and that was with DraftKings. Um, lowering the prize pools and making fewer, um, having fewer entrants per contest. They were trying to combat people switching over to football, and it still didn't really matter. There was still a ton of extra money in those tournaments. So, yeah, you're definitely right. There, People are less focused on baseball. And even though it's murkier, there's definitely, like, if you can sort through all of the noise, there's a lot of potential to get an advantage on people if you know what you're doing at the end of the season. Yeah, it's interesting. I, uh... I don't remember the last time I saw overlay on any DraftKings contest. So there was an eight dollar tournament with fourteen hundred people that I think ended up only filling eight hundred people on Sunday afternoon. Dang, that happens a lot still on Yahoo. I still recommend Yahoo Daily Fantasy because there's crazy overlay every week. I always forget about sport. that, and every time I hear about Yahoo, it's someone telling me that there's overlay on it. Yeah, I know that's definitely something that people should check out more because it's such a it's like it's the third wheel, and I think most people just play DraftKings or FanDuel at this point and don't even realize Yahoo has DFS. Yeah, I was doing a, a big one of their big tournaments last night, and I think it was seventy percent full. Yeah, that's yeah, that's, that's wild. So. All right, let's see. What should we move on to next? Um, so I don't think that we've talked about this before because we've done a few of these podcasts, but I've gotten frustrated a lot with average exit velocity being quoted as a stat. 
and it's just really misleading. So can you guys sort of weigh in on what you think would be a better way to tell a casual fan how hard someone hits the ball, like a way that's better than just saying, here's their raw average output for the average of all their exit velocities. <laughs> Who's going to go? It's, it's hard. We don't have video up, so I can't like point to you guys. All right. I have video. Sorry, Ben, I'll let you start. Cause I just got distracted by Marco Gonzalez. <laughs> Your boy, Marco Gonzalez got a strikeout or he yeah. got pulled from the game. Uh, I wouldn't call him my boy because he's not very good, but he did get a strikeout. Oh, yay. And then Jeff Bannister got ejected. What's that for? Uh, well, I haven't seen that yet on the stream, but he's currently – he's arguing Oh, sorry I spoiled it for you. Uh, did he get ejected? <laughs> it says on the MLB app that he got ejected. You spoke – are you the guy who just, like, spoils yes, everything? Yes, that's exactly what I am. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me even a little bit. Uh, well – if he did just get ejected, that was like the calmest ejection ever. Well, it was that then because it says it on the MLB app. Well, we <laughs> I all love spoiling the games wrong, for I mean, it's usually not wrong. It might be wrong sometimes. I don't think it's wrong. Hold on, real quick. Can I highlight my favorite baseball moment of the year? Okay. Um, when I noticed that when I pulled up game day a few, like a month ago or whatever and uh, – uh, who was it? The catcher was playing. Travis Darno. Travis Darno. Oh, yeah, when he when was I, playing I all the different Travis positions. Darno and I saw second base, third base, second base, third base, second base, third base, and I was like, "Huh, that's a funny game day error." <laughs> Do you know that Anthony Rizzo now has second base eligibility in season long leagues from the bunting formation? Wow, that's terrible. Yeah, I have him in our Trackman league, and he, I can play him at second now. <laughs> that's a joke. Yeah, <laughs> that's terrible. <laughs> no, it's great. Well, it's great value for you. It's yeah. terrible that the... Although I do already have Jose Altuve and Robinson Cano, so it's sort of useless, but uh, I do. I just like it. I like that it exists. That's absurd. That's like that's is. actually absurd. There's <laughs> only the second base. Uh, anyway, I, I, uh, <laughs> if we want to go back to exit velocity... Let's go back. Um, I tend to think, like, I tend to think percentiles are the better play here. Um, like, I mean, to me, you break it up to, you break it up, like, obviously you can take the median, you can take, like, 90th percentile. Like, basically, like, get an idea of, of like, you know, when this hitter connects, like, how hard does it go? When, you know, like, on his, a like, not average, but, like, on his median ball, like, how, how, uh, how fast does it go? And, like, to me, the lower quantiles don't really matter because like i don't know it doesn't matter if john carlos stanton's 10th percentile exit velocity is like 60 miles an hour because like it was clearly a miss hit right like and his miss hits aren't better than anyone else's um so i don't know i think i think focusing on like where are their like top ends and like how quickly does it degrade gives you a lot more information about like what they're contact quality profile looks like. Yeah, I think yeah, what's I hard think. is you need multiple metrics here. Like, you can't break this down into one number. Like, the, if you had... Like, I think you could maybe do two metrics where you did something like barrel percentage, which I think is sort of what you were alluding to, where it's percentage of the time that the guy squares it up and hits it over 95 miles per hour on a line drive or, like, a high line drive or whatever. And But you'd also need to know the peak. 
Like, you don't want to just know... It, it would make it seem like Alex Avila and Aaron Judge are the same hitter because they have similar barrel percentages. Like, when one guy connects, it's going way harder than the other. So you can't... Like, is there a way to just reduce it to one number, or is that not even possible to get a complete understanding of what's going on? Uh, I hate barrel just going to throw that out there. Uh, I was just going to say, Matt, that is exactly what I was going to say, and that <laughs> I think one dumb thing that people do is try to look at, like, I hate when people say, if you could look at one stat, which would you look at? Because why would you possibly do that? Like, why would you want to limit the amount of data and information you're looking at? And so I think it, uh, I just hate when people, like, talk about how they use only, like, average exit velocity for a player, as in, like, Oh, Mark Trumbo's really good because he's eighth in MLB and average exit velocity. It's like okay, I mean <laughs> that's good, but you need you need to put that in context of so much more. Right, that doesn't account for all the times that he doesn't make contact with the ball. That's that's definitely the biggest problem there. Yeah, and it's great that Mark Trumbo can hit a ball really hard when he pops it up, but like just saying, yeah, I mean raw. Raw, just I I agree with your initial point that people who use just raw exit velocity are completely abusing these new stats, and people are putting way too much stock into just saying like just looking at uh, raw exit velocity and well, and going on Ben said just looking at barrel percentage, which oh yeah, Ben, what's your gripe with barrel percentage? It's just I think it's dumb whenever you arbitrarily introduce a cutoff. That's um, true. The, the method that I suggested was just like basically instead of looking at one number, like instead of looking at average, and first of all, like don't use average because it's going to get pulled, you know, in this case down because like the skew is always going to be the left. Like you can only hit a ball so hard, like physically you can only hit a ball so hard. But like you can get this crazy, you know, like soft hit that like – happens to register on the track man that's like 35 miles an hour and that's gonna like tank your average but it's not really gonna touch your median right so i guess like that's why i prefer kind of the percentile approach uh, but i honestly think like if, there, if you want to look at i mean i fully agree with aiden that like the idea that people need to simplify down to one number is just like absurd like why would you limit <laughs> the amount of information you're gonna use um but like i i think one that's good is just basically expected value of the ball in play because like it takes in the angle it takes in the um exit velocity and then like the horizontal angle as well it basically says like all right you know given that this play this ball is you know a fly fly out 70 percent of the time a single 20 percent of the time and so on like you can get basically an expected value of that baseball and i think that's a pretty good thing like uh like I know Andrew Perpetua does stuff like that. Like that's who I was going to bring um, up. He's he's got a great thing going yeah. at xstats.org. Yeah, and I mean I think you have to like look at it as a descriptive stat and not a predictive stat, which I think is equally important to the like how do we how do we interact with statistics in general? Like making the assumption that because this player has the highest you know x woba or whatever, he's going to have the best x woba going forward is like not necessarily the right takeaway like you have to look at like how predictive the stat that is um so yeah i i i just think like the overall way to look at this is don't boil it down to one number just like do the analysis on what you can like are are like you know is the 
90th percentile exit velocity um, predictive. You know, like basically look at what's predictive and, and kind of use that as, as like the basis for what stat to select, not just like in your head trying to think of like, yeah, this is the one that makes the most sense, right? Well, if you are only going to look at these new stats, I think one of the cool things are those those charts where it, it'll show every ball that they've, the batter's hit and give you the exit velocity and the angle. So if you are going to briefly look at something and try to come up with the conclusion, that's a lot more useful than just looking at average numbers. But obviously still, I, I, I mean, I, I just think that I think that people are getting way too into it because it's just new and cool stats, and so people are just uh, putting too much faith into it or overweighting it just in regards to a lot of the older data we have just because it's, you know, not as new and uh, not as not as, as fun as looking at some of these new things. And so they kind of just uh, overweight that in their minds when evaluating everything together. Yeah, we're definitely I mean, in even, absolute agreement here that one number is bad, but it also is certainly true that most people either don't have time to look at a whole bunch of different numbers together or they're just – they prefer – it's just human nature to want to see something simplified. So the fact is we do have to deal with explaining things to people who are trying to say what's the one number that describes what's going on. So even though we definitely agree that that's the wrong way to do it or it's the least efficient way to do it, um, people are always going to do it that way. People are always going to try to analyze things with one statement or one number or one fact about it. So if we do have to deal with that, then something like XWOBA, as long as you realize that it's mostly descriptive, something like XWOBA or XWRC Plus that tells you what those stats should have been based on the balls in play and all of that, it basically combines all of the factors that we're talking about. At least those numbers kind of get you close, but there's still so many problems with them and there's obviously tons of problems just going by average exit velocity or average launch angle or anything independently. But at least we have some stats that aren't terrible in that regard they're just uh there's a lot better ways to do it right i think this analytics culture like the saber metrics culture that has kind of like popped up over the last 15 years has is accustomed to seeing the one number because like bill james and um like everyone at fangrass and like basically all the work that has been done has consolidated everything to one number. Like WOBA is the one number that like measures offensive production. Like WAR is the one number that measures like basically overall impacts, right? Like, like uh, you know, I I think because people are used to that's the way it's been done. That's just what's like expected going forward with any new analysis. I think it's a huge problem. It is like you're not going to always be able to do that. Uh, you're gonna you're gonna lose a lot of information on the way. Like. Matt, you said, you know, like, if I want to know what's going on with just one number, then what do I use? Well, the answer is you're not going to know what's going on. Like, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It's... Obviously, what you said, Matt, is obviously going to be true with everything in life, and especially with baseball. I mean, if you're playing, if you're just going to go in and try to play a little daily fantasy, it's not like you have time to go spend an hour looking at the full profile of all the batters and pitchers. I guess I would just caution if you have one thing to look at i wouldn't really i still probably at this point wouldn't even if i had limited time even go look at the exit velocity data and some of these newer stats because i mean 
I have been reading less this year about baseball, but I still haven't seen any really studies that showed a that strong of a correlation between exit velocity and most stats. Obviously, you know, someone like Judge who can hit the ball harder than everyone else in the league is going to have a, a higher ceiling than other players, especially on a one-game basis, but... I don't know. I, that's just not something that I, if if I only had like two minutes to go make a quick evaluation on like a group of players, I wouldn't pull up their like expected anything off of their ex, expected exit velocity, I guess. Yeah, you'd probably just be better off using their raw output, like their WRC plus or their WOBA or their even their OPS or something like that. If you're trying to get yeah, a complete no. picture, it's better to just use a descriptive metric, probably. Yeah, no, I mean, in the future, if there's a stat that can work work this new stuff into it and help improve then yeah definitely use that in the future but i guess at this point i my main point is just i think people are over ambitious with their use of these stats because they're newer and and more fun to look at it depends are you gonna are you gonna use it as a descriptive stat to say like who is good or are you trying to find what's predictive to like make the best decision in daily fantasy like if you want something that's predictive, then essentially what you would need, I mean, I, I know, I saw an article last year about Steamer working in exit velocity to their projections, both for hitters and pitchers. And I think, like, if you want something that's predictive, use something that's already predictive that's going to fold that kind of information in. Now, obviously, the overhead cost to, like, building something predictive, if you don't know how to do it, and even if you do know how to do it, is huge. Um, so it's really all about finding like the good public projections and there are ways to evaluate those. Like you can look at the preseason steamer projections for this year, last year and see like how well did they perform? How well did zips perform? How well did Dakota perform? Like you can do that and, and like evaluate that way. Like who is, which projection is best to use or like what combination of weights of projections is best to use. That's what I would spend my time on, not looking at anything descriptive. Like, it, to me, it doesn't even matter if I understand it, as long as I have like a good performing model. Like, I don't need to explain why I'm playing this player. Like, if it's because his exit velocity is good or his contact percentage is good, but like, if in aggregation it ends up with a good prediction, I don't use that. That's sort of um, similar to a methodology that I use for picking players, where. It doesn't matter what the combination factors are as long as you know the full effect. Um, so something, I don't think we've talked about this before, but I use the Vegas line movement to find out where the sharp money is, um, like what all the pros in Vegas are doing to figure out what teams to use because I don't trust my own intuitions enough to just go purely on that. And there are, there are flaws in any projection model. There's always some sort of recent data that they may not be accounting for or over accounting for. So I always want to see what the, the pros in Vegas are betting on to help inform my decision. And a lot of times you'll see a strange line movement. Um, there's a site that I use, it's Sports Insights, and I follow it. You get like up to the second um, line movement data. And a lot of times you'll see lines change for what seems like absolutely no reason, but there tends to be a ton of predictive value in it. Um, and there could be some sort of matchup advantage that a team has on a pitcher. Like maybe that pitcher throws a lot of low changeups and that team hits a lot of low changeups really well. Or um, maybe the the total in the game is going up or down based on the umpire strike zone. Maybe there's something with the weather, but you can sort of take you can take the full picture from the Vegas line movement 
and not have to know that the game is going to be higher scoring because of the wind or if it's because of the umpire. Like, it doesn't really matter what the cause is as long as you know what the effect is. And I think that sort of translates to what you're talking about, where you don't need to know all of the intricacies because it takes too much time and it's just not really all that relevant for predictive purposes. I mean, you, if you're the one building the model, sure, but if you're just trying to make the best decisions, then getting too detailed with what you're trying to figure out, I think, is kind of a waste of time. Yeah, well, I mean, just briefly on one of your points there, I pretty much think if you're betting on sports and you're trying to put your intuition into it, you're gonna, you're not gonna, it's not gonna help. Like, just don't do that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll before you guys weigh on most basic rule. Yeah, I'll, I'll give I'll give another example before you guys weigh in further. Um, for yesterday's game, uh, it was Monday night. The Pirates were facing the Brewers, and my first intuition was to use Brandon Woodruff against Pittsburgh. And then all of the sharp money in Vegas was heavily going on Pittsburgh and the over in the game. So it was like very, very strong indicators on the Pirates' offense. And they were fairly cheap on DraftKings. So I was like, okay, screw it. I mean, the pros are betting on the Pirates. They don't cost that much. I'm going to just scrap my entire plan to use Brandon Woodruff and use the Pirates hitters instead. And more often than not, when I make the decision for those reasons against my intuition and just follow what the smart people in Vegas are all doing it tends to work out. I mean, the Pirates won 7 nothing. It's not usually that simple. It doesn't always work out that easily. But I think more often than not, it does work out that way. And it's just kind of ridiculous that people think they can make all these choices and determinations just based on what seems like the right move. Yeah, I mean, I guess I can't attest specifically to uh, following the line just because that's not something I'm versed in. But, I mean, the logic seems sound. And yeah, I don't care how smart you are. You're, you're not smarter than aggregation of there's so many people out there who are smarter than you and the computer's going to beat you every time anyways it'd be pretty arrogant to assume that you're smarter than the collective mindset of all the best professional gamblers in the world and then just asinine to believe that you're smarter than computers yeah oh yeah for sure i'm 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 not very clever sometimes i uh i guess i'm clever just because i am willing to take the other people's analysis and not just say i'm going with my gut feeling screw it i just i believe what i believe and that's it i think uh the smartest the best way to be intelligent with decision making is to accept that you don't actually know what's going on yep i yep i agree i i think that's a really like if you want to boil something down to one statement, that is a great <laughs> statement to boil down to. It's, Thanks, uh, Basically, go with you know, <laughs> go with what you can, you know, predict systematically. Like go with you know, go with the model. Go with you know, the collective on Vegas. Go like it. It makes a lot of sense. Like the idea that you can just beat it. <laughs> really, doing much of anything other than building a very complex model is ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty, a pretty good rule uh, for life in general, just even if you best gambling or sports. I, I pretty much, you, your opinion's never going to be the opinions of the aggr aggregation of every single other person. Like, yeah, there even, are going to be some like outliers that people might try to say, like, justifies them thinking they're smarter than the aggregation of everyone else, but those are just outliers in general. That's not going to hold true. Absolutely. Even even like investing in a stock, like you know, like the idea that you know, like I mean, there's been so many studies out there. There was one in, 
there was definitely one in Thinking Fast and Slow, and I think there was one in Black Swan as well, um, on like basically taking the best stock pickers over you know a ten year stretch or whatever, and then like checking how they did in the eleventh year, or even like like a, maybe it was even like a window longer than a year, um, but basically like that that ten year stretch offered absolutely zero predictive value on like how they did going forward. Um, and it's like, I mean, yeah, it's, it, the, the idea that someone would be like, yeah, I saw a Tesla coming or like, I see this next company coming. It's like, well, you're probably just guessing and, uh, your, you know, intuition is probably just as good as a guess. So now we yeah, have uh, two statements from the last two podcasts that we wrapped up with. Uh, we don't know anything. Trust the aggregate and bunts are bad. Or those are two universally true statements. Oh, I mean, bunts are always good. <laughs> you need, you need, we need to get Terrence in on the next, oh, the next yes. podcast. We got to get hit and run talk and small ball and productive outs. We haven't talked about that stuff in a while.